0: Trial brief with your host, David Otto.
1: Back many months ago, I saw a promo for a book titled American Rule: How a Nation Conquered the World but Failed Its People. And I saw a brief description of it, and it was on for pre-order. So I had this feeling, and I'm it's not a premonition or anything, and I'm usually wrong on most of my my feelings about these things, but I had this feeling that this book was going to be special in that it was going to be almost like a modern extension of Howard Zinn's history, you know, of the world. So I pre-ordered it. I probably was the first one to pre-order it. And what happens months later, I see someone on Twitter who said, "I, I just got it today. I can't wait to crack it open. I'm thinking, wait a minute, where's my copy? Days go by. I still don't have the copy. It never arrives. I'm, I'm getting agitated. Um, but it was worth the wait. And the book is special. And the book is important. And the book is something that everybody has to read. And again, I am so fortunate to be able to speak with Professor Jared Yates Sexton today. Really honored to have him on the show. So Jared, welcome.
0: Hey, thank you for having me.
1: Now, Jared, you're a professor. Where are you? Georgia Southern?
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: Well, now Georgia Blue State, right?
0: Listen, it is already getting weird down here. No, I mean it was weird to begin with, and it's 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 reaching a whole new level right now.
1: You're a writer. You're a professor of writing. You know, I know a bit about your background. I'd love for you to tell us how you got involved in political journalism and how you got involved in this
0: book. I took a weird route into you know writing about politics. I so I am by trade a fiction writer and. I was working on a novel back in 2015 during the summer, and this novel was just, oh man, it was absolutely out of control. It was like one of those things where I think I was like 360 pages in or something with no end in sight. And I realized pretty abruptly, I was like, oh, I have a failed novel on my hands. And I, I'm not good with free time. Uh, I, I, I prefer to stay busy. And so I was like, well, I need something to bide my time until I come up with my next novel idea. And so at that point in, in the summer of 2015, the, uh, the presidential election for 2016 was beginning to take shape, and I decided that I was going to just dive into it. I was going to do a weekly column about it, and I was going to eventually compile this and do a little bit of um, you know, in-person journalism, going to rallies and stuff, and, and being at events. And, and I would eventually you know, publish this as sort of like an essay collection that you know, like maybe five people would buy. So I started going to these rallies, and then uh, you know, everything just sort of went out of control. Uh, I went to a Trump rally and it, it, a Donald Trump rally, and it was almost instantaneous, and I was like, "Oh, there's something really bad brewing here." And I, I was one of the first people who was going into the crowds and talking with his supporters, because at that time, it was back when uh, everyone treated him like he was a sideshow. And, you know, they would just put the cameras on them and let them ramble for an hour and a half. And it meant huge ratings and nobody took it very seriously. But I was going into these rallies and I was trying to tell people, I was like, first of all, I know these people because these people are more or less like my family. They're like the people that I grew up around. They're saying things that my family used to say behind closed doors, but now they're being empowered and enabled by Donald Trump. And on top of that, like, not only is it racism and misogyny, but they're actually talking about fascistic things, anti-democratic things. So I started sounding the alarm back then, and, and I did not expect to be in the position that I was. So back in 2015, 2016, I was sounding this alarm about Trumpism and trying to tell people what was going on. And there was this developing fascistic cult. And also I grew up in this, uh, what I now refer to as a neo-confederate white identity, uh, evangelicalism, which has, you know, become this cult around Donald Trump. So I was in a pretty good situation to understand what was developing around him. But what has happened in the past couple of years, particularly with Donald Trump taking power, is I then started dedicating myself to understanding how we've arrived at this moment. And not treating it as this weird aberration that just popped up out of nowhere, but I needed to track down what it was about America that would lead us to this moment. And so, more or less, I started out by uh, sneaking into Trump rallies, and now I am dedicated to not just exposing how fascism is a central tenet of, of American existence, but how we've come to this moment of crisis, and how uh, and and how dire this actually is.
1: In your book, one of the most intriguing things—the important undercurrent that you have to understand before you understand the book and you can understand where we are today—is this myth of American exceptionalism. And this theme comes up in maybe not overtly, but sometimes not so obvious. But in some books that I've read, this is something that we need to understand. And, and you do an incredible job in the book of laying this out.
0: Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. It's, it's a really weird, hard thing to sort of understand. But, you know, one, one of the things I wanted to get across in this book, and I think it, it's an issue that Americans haven't really dealt with, is that politics isn't just going to a voting place and putting in a ballot. What we're actually dealing with here is a war over reality. It is, and, and for the longest time, Americans have sort of lived in this imagined sort of space where they believe that there was uh, what I, what you would call objective reality or, you know, everybody sort of experienced the same things. And the uniting force behind all of that was this myth of American exceptionalism. It didn't matter what your day was like. It didn't matter what your life had been like. There was this belief that America was a special country, that for some people that it was ordained by an all-powerful, omnipotent God. Uh, other people believe that America just happens to have this natural, inherent goodness to it. And what we've seen over the past few years, and, you know, we, we, we hear a lot of people who talk about how weird things are getting and all these conspiracy theories and how it feels like, you know, the world is breaking and, and you know, all, all this stuff. What we're actually seeing is that illusion of American exceptionalism, which was sort of the gravity that held together this old idea of reality. It's starting to fall apart. And as it falls apart, this old mythology, this old story of America that we've all been taught, it's starting to become very threadbare. And it's it's starting to come apart at the seams, is what it is. And so I really wanted to get across in this book not just the actual history of America, because the history that we've been taught in our schools, in our popular culture, and in our politics is not only false, it's intentionally false. It's, it's a weapon, and it's a piece of propaganda. But I wanted to get across the fact that this is, in this moment, the, the most important thing that we're doing is trying to fight over the very nature of reality. It's a weird concept, but I think it's absolutely it's absolutely essential to get, to understand where we are and where we could possibly be going.
1: You know, you look at today, this belief we were installed by God, basically, it creates this feeling of immunity, like we're immune from authoritarian rule because, you know, of this divine, divine province. You know, a lot of times you read a book, you read the chapter, and you just want to keep reading it. You just can't stop. A couple of chapters in your book, I had to stop. And I had to just put the book down. And, and I, I was sort of overwhelmed with what it provoked, you know, with the thoughts that these chapters provoked. Before I get into the, the more provoking ones, I, I want to ask you to talk a little bit about the founding ideals and, and what they really were, as opposed to what we were taught.
0: For sure. And, and, and real fast, just to uh, respond to what you were saying, I have to tell you that as I wrote this book, there were moments that I had to stop. And, you know, I would I would have to go collect myself because when I started writing this, I really expected to find things I didn't know about. Like, you know, that's the nature of history and that's the the nature of research. And I sort of had a feeling, you know, I'd read like Howard Zinn as well. And I've read, you know, other other pieces of of research and, and what you would consider subversive ideas. And and so I had a I had a decent understanding of maybe where the story of America separated from the actual history of America. But what they found shocked me. And like you, I I sort of felt this this odd panic uh, the more and more I realized that my understanding of history or the history that I had been taught was not only wrong, but it was intentionally and dangerously wrong. And it started with the founding. I expected doing research on the founding that I would, you know, I would, I thought I would find racism. I thought I would find misogyny. I thought that those things were just going to inherently be there. But what I found um, from the very beginning of this project just absolutely stupefied me. Um, You know, I went back and I think the first book that I read to prepare for this book was James Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention. And, of course, James Madison was the uh, the main framer of the Constitution. And luckily for us, uh, he kept good notes of the debate over the Constitution. And what I found was, first and foremost, uh, the the framers of the Constitution, the founding fathers, were not authorized write a constitution. They were actually in Philadelphia to revise the Articles of Confederation. And Madison and a bunch of uh, you know, he had a a small group of other representatives who came together and they said, yeah, we may not be authorized to write a constitution, but we're doing it anyway. And you know, they, they, they admitted it openly. And then the actual framing as it's happening and as the debate is happening, what you find is that the Founders had no trust whatsoever in common people. They believed common people didn't deserve democracy. They believed that they would never make good decisions in terms of politics. And so they created a government that was specifically intended to make common people feel like they were being represented while keeping them the farthest away from power as possible. This is why um, the House of Representatives was the only direct ballot initiative that, that common people could actually vote on. The Senate was appointed, uh, the presidency, of course, through the Electoral College, they made sure that there was no way that people were going to mess up the, the presidential thing. And that's why the House of Representatives was by itself. But what you also find while the founders are talking about how much they don't trust common people and how dangerous it is to give common people anything approaching a say in the government, what they also do is they take white supremacy, and because they have to bring the Southern states along, and because most of them were either slaveholders or white supremacists themselves, they enshrine white supremacy within the founding document of our country, which immediately draws a line of distinction between Thomas Jefferson, who, by the way, uh, owned generations of human beings. He's a massive, massive paradox, and just Absolutely awful at times, and at other times gave voice to incredible ideas of freedom, liberty, and equality. The line in the sand was drawn between these two documents, which meant that America, from the very beginning, was a white supremacist aristocracy that presented itself to the world as being devoted to freedom, liberty, and equality. It was a new invention. It was a, um, it, it was. Uh, inequality hidden behind the veneer of equality. And it, it was a really sinister invention that they created. But from the very beginning, America was failing at all of its espoused principles.
1: Right. And I think you pointed out they weren't even religious men, right? I mean, they, they were really deist as opposed to Christians, right? Is that, is that fair?
0: Uh, it's absolutely fair. And if you actually take, and, and I wrote about this uh, in the book as well, If you actually look at the time period, so of course we've come to call it the Enlightenment. If you look at history, and I'm actually working on another project right now where I'm relearning the entirety of the history of so-called Western civilization, and what you actually find is that the Enlightenment is this period where um, aristocratic men like Jefferson and Madison, they start pushing back against the idea of theocratic control, the idea that the church should be fundamental in how power is distributed and handled. This is also what you see with the French Revolution as well. So they were deists for the most part. They believed that there might have been a creator, although they didn't necessarily give it, uh, you know, Christ-like qualities or Christian qualities. But um, they, from the very beginning, wanted it to be a country that was based on logic or uh, human principles as opposed to being... uh, submerged in any sort of religious mythology. So they were deists and they were trying to create a secular society.
1: Yeah. I want to talk about a chapter of the book that I was referring to earlier, where you just got to put it down because it, it just hits you. And you watch these Trump rallies and, and you see the QAnon signs that people are holding at the rally in front of the president, behind the president. Uh, you see elected officials who endorse and promote this QAnon. It's disturbing enough that it's seeping in to our norms now. But when I read the chapter on the myth of the mound builders, I said to myself, well, there has been QAnon for a very long time.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'll even take it back because, again, I'm working on this, uh, this other project. And I, I, I went back to ancient Rome, and I found something that, that and again, this, was, this is when I knew that the project that I had started was uh, you know, going to do its own thing. I, I found the, the Christian church, uh, for those who aren't aware, in Rome, it was actually outlawed. And so you had Christians in ancient Rome who had to worship in secret. And one of the main rumors and, and slanders against Christians was that in the dark, in their secret worships, worshiping uh, ceremonies, that they would abuse children that they would sacrifice children and that they would, for magical powers, um, eat children and drink their blood, which is QAnon. That's that's QAnon through and through. That is the basis of QAnon. And then once Christians took over uh, you know, the apparatus of ancient Rome, they immediately started saying that the pagans and the Jews were kidnapping children. They were drinking their blood. They were torturing them. And what you end up finding is that those rumors and conspiracies have made their way throughout history. And, and what you're talking about with uh, the mound builders, this was actually during Andrew Jackson's term. You know, of course, we know that Andrew Jackson and, uh, you know, other American presidents carried out a systematic genocide of the native people. And to legitimize that, they created this idea. And for anyone who doesn't know, there are these mounds around North America that uh, were, were built by, by Native people. And, you know, they're, they're really impressive. And so, because white supremacy was the rule of the day, no one believed that the natives could do it. And so, there had to have been a previous white race who was in America. And so, the natives had carried out a genocide against them theoretically, so it made it okay to get rid of them. It is this bizarre self-filling prophecy through conspiracy theories and self-delusion that leads to the legitimization of violence, preemptive violence. And so this is actually, and this is sadly the truth, this is part of human nature and human history. This doesn't just pop up out of nowhere. It's been the rule of the day. And America has been susceptible to this from its very beginning. Nearly every major era is defined by this type of conspiratorial thinking. And almost always, it leads to uh, legitimized preemptive violence, including the Civil War. So yeah, this is not something new. And it seems bizarre and it seems weird, but it's as old as uh, civilization itself.
1: And it seems that when people feel either isolated or they feel powerless that's when they turn to these conspiracy theories
0: yeah that's absolutely right so conspiracy theories on their face they arise when people are kept away from power if, if people are kept away from power and they don't understand power they have to create stories that give them an idea of how power works so, for instance, the the thing I've tried to explain to people is uh, like the New World Order conspiracy theory, which is just a rebranding of the elders or the protocols of the elders of Zion, which of course animated fascism. But the New World Order conspiracy theory is actually a simplification of the rise of global economics and deindustrialization within America, and it explains how trade changed. So like people like my family who are laborers and factory workers want to know why they're losing their jobs at factories. And on top of that, they live in America, the greatest country in the world. How is it that they are falling behind? Well, simple. It has to be a conspiracy. That can happen very organically, but when you start to get fascism and when really bad things start to happen is when those simplified explanations fill the vacuum. It's when people with political power and means Use those conspiracy theories as weapons, which is what we're seeing now, is that we have the Republican Party as well as a group of very, very wealthy elite corporatists in this country who are using these conspiracy theories to their own advantage. And when they get these believers all riled up, when they get them good and radicalized. More or less, they can point them like they would point a gun, and and it creates a situation where that uh, you know preemptive violence can take over, and you can intimidate your enemies, and you can take advantage of it politically.
1: Unfortunately, we're witnessing it in real time, where these repeated lies and the conspiracy theory about the stolen election is going to be that loaded gun. I'm afraid, but I, I want to talk about the relationship of the evangelicals and, you know, Reagan, evangelicals and the shining city on the hill.
0: Yeah. So I grew up in what I, I now call the cult to the shining city. I knew growing up that it was odd. I knew that there was something strange, but when you grow up in an environment or a reality like this, you know, it, it's still what reality is. It's still what encompasses reality. I didn't understand it until I researched American rule and what I found was that what I grew up in and what America is, is currently uh, just absolutely engrossed by is a white identity, neo-Confederate evangelicalism. And this has its roots, um, you know, in, in the part of the country in the South, uh, Southern Baptist particularly, who, you know, in, in founding the Confederacy, they believed that God, the Christian God, was white supremacist in nature and had chosen white people as his chosen race of people, and that black people should be enslaved, and that was their rightful place. Well, so after the Confederacy ended, and by the way, one of the things we don't talk about, because every time that we talk about the, the Civil War, because we don't like to actually uh, you know, engage with our white supremacist uh, nature, all we talk about like the battles. We actually do this bizarre thing where like we talk about how like the South had great commanders and they fought very, you know bravely. and so as a result, we don't have to criticize any Americans, right? But if you actually look at the history of the Civil War, what you actually find is that the Confederate States of America was a white supremacist theocracy. Um, they They were literally ruled by not just their their leaders, but also by their clergy, by preachers who were preaching that, you know, that the Confederacy had God on their side and that, you know, Christianity was a white supremacist religion. Well, after the Confederacy is beaten, that doesn't go away. It's simply absorbed into the culture. And so you have that tradition that just continually perpetuates. And actually, throughout uh, the early 20th century, you start seeing it actually making inroads in places like, the Midwest and the East and the West. The Confederacy actually expands throughout the country, that ideology. And by the time we get to um, the 1960s uh, and we start having, of course, these fights over segregation, you start having figures like Jerry Falwell, who was a Southern Baptist who gained a lot of popularity and a lot of power. And he starts preaching about this Confederate ideology. He starts preaching that segregation is right, that God has drawn a line of distinction and man should not cross it. And that when when, uh, segregation was actually struck down, that was the animating issue and influence that led to the modern right. That's when all of a sudden those evangelicals started getting involved politically. And so they start looking for some sort of partnership for power And, of course, we have Jimmy Carter, who is an open evangelical, but Jimmy Carter's evangelicalism is completely different from this Southern Baptist idea that people like Falwell were involved in. They were very interested, uh, Falwell and the, the Cult of the Shining City, were very interested in power and wealth, which is, of course, how we end up with the prosperity gospel that we're all familiar with today. And it's also how we end up with this current political situation. Well, eventually, they find Ronald Reagan. And, you know, despite the mythologization of Ronald Reagan, he was not religious. He was spiritual. He was superstitious. He was engaged uh, in, in the entirety of his adult life in occultism. He, you know, he kept regular, uh, you know, uh, psychics around to give him and his wife advice. He palled around with a bunch of mystics, including a guy named Manly P. Hall, who told him about how an angel appeared at the si- at the signing of the Declaration of Independence, you know, and, you know. America was chosen by God, which was a total and utter lie. But Reagan believes this. And so he merges with the evangelical right and creates this bizarre, superstitious, occultish environment that also perpetuates myths about wealth. Because as they believe in prosperity as God shining down on people, Reagan changes the way our economics work in totality. He turns it from, uh, a, a, you know, a more equal society where the government intervenes on behalf of the citizens and makes sure that our economy is stable to one in which it is, of course, trickled down and inherently unstable and inherently unequal. So there in that merger between the evangelical neo-Confederate right and with Ronald Reagan, it creates this environment that we're currently in now, this bizarre, superstitious, conspiracy theory-laden uh time where of course we have you know a few people in this country have incredible wealth I mean we have we have people in this country who are trying to you know fund their own private space programs while other people are having to get on goFundMe in order to get surgeries so this is what fundamentally has changed our culture and this is how we of course reach this point with trumpism
1: yeah, that was fascinating. I mean, the stories about Reagan and, you know, it made me read up a little bit on this uh, Manly Hall. I don't know if you read the book by Kevin Cruz, the Princeton historian, One Nation yeah. Under God. Yeah. Yeah, that was a, you know, it touched upon a lot of those themes. And that's another great reference. I want to talk to you about fascism. Clearly, white supremacy is the underpinning of fascism. i watched the, um, and and I don't know why I'm blanking on the name of the, uh, it was an HBO special, Philip Roth.
0: Oh, the plot against Burke. That's it, yeah.
1: And the Lindbergh situation, and Lindbergh was basically, he ran on being a a white supremacist, and it wasn't well-hidden fascist uh, authoritarian movement in the United States. I had an an author on, uh, Matthew McWilliams, who wrote a, a short book, 12 Lessons from American History on Fascism, and he points out throughout history uh, examples of our predisposition to authoritarianism. And that was the one, when I saw the numbers, and it was a very data-driven book, when I saw the numbers, the percentage of Americans who have this predisposition, I was floored. Floored, but it, it helps you understand, especially after last week when we saw 70 million votes cast, you know, for an authoritarian, right? Right.
0: Well, I'll just say that, and and I'm glad that you said that at the end, I think that this election and uh, 2016 has given us a decent idea of how many people in our country are either full-throated fascistic in terms of their beliefs, even though I don't think that they actually know it. I think there's a group of people in this country who understand fascism and obviously in neo-Nazi circles and KKK circles, whatever you want to go I believe they understand it, but I think there's a lot of people who simply believe that they're engaged in Americanism or Trumpism or patriotism or whatever they they think that they're doing. But what we do find in America is that we had an incredible number of proto-fascistic uh, things happen in our history and, and actually, if you want to move uh, To the 1930s Where fascism is actually being Minted as an ideology, it's actually being Spoken and, and sort of Created in Western Europe What you actually find is that America was a great inspiration To fascism uh, You know, Adolf Hitler absolutely and, and this is the thing, right? Because conventional history tells us America defeated Nazism And made the world safe for democracy Well, what we're losing there is the fact that Adolf Hitler was not really interested in going to war with America. He was actually really more interested in looking at how our founding was inherently white supremacist. He was absolutely inspired by the Confederate States of America, and that was one of the things he looked to in terms of what he wanted the world to look like after he conquered it, Uh, and, and then eventually segregation itself. The, the, you kind of touched on it a little bit earlier as well. America had this very rich culture at the time of eugenics, where, of course, we were making sure that, you know, the poor and the undeserving, that they were being, uh, you know, forcibly sterilized. And, and in fact, the people who laid the groundwork for eugenics in America were going back and forth to Germany and advising Hitler and, and his higher-ups on how to create the system of eugenics that we had in America. Um, the fascists were also inspired by a lot of our thinkers. We had people like Madison Grant and Lothrop Stoddard who were writing these books about the passing of the great race and the rising tide of color. Well, what ends up happening? And and this is something, and, and hopefully people listening will be able to put this in their framework, and it will sort of uh, give them an idea of where we are right now. When the Great Depression happens, uh, you know, obviously there's uh, a lot of stress put on the system. And in moments of great stress, people become radicalized. When they don't, when, you know, when it feels like they can't get ahead, when it feels like they can't get a job, it feels like there's, you know, no hope. They become very, very attracted to movements that tell them that they are powerful and that, you know, a strong man will lead us back to former glories and, I don't know, make America great again. So what you end up seeing in America is that after the Great Depression uh, strikes, we have a lot of Americans who jumped into fascism with both feet. I mean, there's a very famous incident uh, where I want to say it was 20,000 people attended an American Nazi rally in Madison Square Garden. Uh, we have all of these groups around the country that like fashion themselves as fascists. We have major thinkers and political leaders who call themselves fascists. And I really enjoyed the Plot Against America book and miniseries. But one of the things that it didn't necessarily get into is the Charles Lindbergh, who went to Nazi Germany and advised them on the Luftwaffe, he was writing articles saying that America should join the war on the side of the Nazis in order to protect the white race. And he was gaining. He was gaining a lot of popularity and a lot of traction. And he would give these speeches about how the media was taken over and how they were going to lead us into a war and we had been betrayed and, you know, the Jews owned everything and they, they you know were constantly manipulating us. There was this vast conspiracy. Well, what changed was, first and foremost, FDR creates the New Deal, which makes sure that a lot of young men who might have become fascists suddenly have something to do. They're going around the country working on infrastructure. They have jobs. That, that sort of spins the tide a little bit. But eventually, of course, Pearl Harbor brings us into the war. And then we just sort of wander out any fascistic movement or impulses we had in the country. This is one of the reasons why conventional history works the way that it does, is it eventually blurs out the actual history, which is that America came very close to becoming a fascistic nation uh, right at the time where fascism was rising as an alternative.
1: Let's jump to today. Let's talk about where we are. You know, where we are didn't just happen, you know, in 2016. It didn't just flip the switch and we became a divided nation. I mean, this has been going on and, and it's been slowly eroding our democracy. And what I mean by that is there's, and again, I'm not, Anybody who knows me knows I'm not one for hyperbole or, or anything like that. But we have been in a civil war. I mean, we really have been in a way for, for a little while now where whether it's history or truth or, or what have you is being weaponized to divide us. And we we see the results of that now. You know, we see this myth of what America used to be, you know, make America great again and that this, this myth is being used to divide the people who believe in the myth and people who are in touch with, with reality. We're in a very dangerous, very, very dangerous place because of truth. You know, truth is not a bipartisan thing anymore, right? That's a big problem, and I, I don't know what the solution's going forward. I mean, I, I have ideas, and I, I just want to pick your brain on where we go from here in order to prevent this from escalating. And, uh, you know, and when I say civil war, I I mean, it's a different war. I mean, it's not, obviously we don't have armies lining up against each other. That's, that's not what we're talking about. This is a very different time and and it's a modern war and it's a, do, do you see that as well?
0: Absolutely. And I'm glad that you put it that way, that it's not armies lining up against each other because that's, again, that's, that's how we, we have our concepts created for us. What you actually see in other countries when it comes to civil wars is, you know, you start having sectarian violence. You start having asymmetrical attacks. And what's at the heart of those things? And and, and by the way, before I get into even, like, the list of that stuff, I just wanna point out for people listening, you even had to pause talking about the current situation and say, I'm not an alarmist. Like, the fact is, the President of the United States is attempting to pull off a coup in plain sight. And one of the two major parties is helping him right now. Like that's actually what is happening in this country. And that's not even, that's not even alarmist. That's the, 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 the bold face truth.
1: If I could, you know, I was thinking about this today and I'm thinking about what's going on. I'm watching days after an election, the president hold up in the white house, not leaving, claiming and ignoring the election results. He's, he's staffing, the White House, he's proceeding with his budget plans. He's doing nothing about a pandemic. And then I'm watching at the same time on like a split screen, the president-elect basically involved in his own transition. And I'm thinking to myself, if we were watching this, okay, if we as Americans were watching this 12, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago in another country, we'd be saying, what the hell is going on
0: there? That's exactly right. And one of the biggest problems with this is what we started out talking about, which is these mythologies and stories. The reason why more people aren't losing their minds right now in a situation where we should be losing our minds is because of those stories. We have a lot of people that, you know, their gut is like, oh, this is not great. This is not a good situation. This this might be really, really bad. But meanwhile, in the back of their mind is that indoctrination and propaganda that says, don't worry, it's totally fine, this is the United States of America, stuff like this doesn't happen here. And the truth is that that we we have to call this what it is, because you have a president who's not only not accepting the results of this election, if you watch or read any right-wing media right now, it's gotten to the point where they are portraying a free and fair election as if it was a coup by the Democratic Party. And as a result, they are now going to carry out their own coup to counteract the coup. This is what happens with fascism. What happens is you become convinced that the other side will harm you if you don't harm them first. So what ends up happening, and this is where we have sectarian violence, asymmetrical violence, civil war, is a group of people says, you know what, we are in actual danger and we cannot allow this to continue. We can't let, you know, I don't know, the smoking gun become a, a, a mushroom cloud, right? And so instead, you, you go out and you, you carry out this violence. In other countries, particularly in second and, and so-called third world countries, you have, you know, people who get in caravans of trucks and they go from one place to another carrying out violence wherever they find it. They also start having a separate mythology, which is that they are real Americans or, or they are, you know, the, the real owners of the country. And the other people are dangerous. There's an othering that takes place. Everything that we're watching right now, and this is again not hyperbole. Like I'm, I'm I, I have to tell you that like people, people want to believe that apparently everyone you know sounding the alarm right now is a grifter and feel more than free, but understand the reason why we've been able to predict this and the reason why we've been able to understand step by step what Trump was going to do is because this stuff is pretty evident. It's evident when you look at the history of this country, it's evident when you look at the history of fascism, and it's evident because they have told us time and time and time again what they were going to do and how they were going to do it. Very little of this moment is obscured. This is a moment of crisis.
1: Yeah, for sure. And this has been such you know a mixed bag, for me at least, the election. I should have been dancing in the streets and, and throwing a party and, and the whole thing, but I tell you there was such a strong feeling of, I can't believe how many people have bought into this. And what that told me, and I, I got a very, you know, it, it, sort of, it sort of hit me all at once that there's going to come along and it's not going to be 50 years from now. It's going to be in 2024 because face it, Donald Trump is not smart. He's not capable. Can you yep. imagine a capable smart fascist you know a tom cotton or something like this who who's out there and i could name 10 other people who scare the hell out of me because they tap into that darkness they'll tap into these feelings and someone who knows what they're doing we're in big trouble
0: absolutely and and this is it, it, it's really hard to explain this because donald trump is a present and real threat. So it's hard to talk about what could possibly be worse or what could possibly be coming. And I, I, you know what we're talking about here with this idea of people who are in denial about this or what this mythology does, this is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm basically screaming at the top of my voice is because Donald Trump is glaringly incompetent, laughably incompetent. And the media still tried at every step and turn to try and paint him as, well, he's smarter than you think. He's actually doing this. He doesn't mean this. And, and there's, you know, maybe this will be the moment that he pivots. Maybe this will be the moment he becomes president because they believe that America would never elect somebody who is not only so venal and, and awful and cruel, just straight incompetent. So what we have is a situation where they have tried time and time again to uh, remedy that. They've tried to look for something that wasn't there because they want to respect the office. I want people to think about this. What happens when somebody comes in, does all of the strongman fascistic stuff that Trump has done, which, by the way, has proven that our systems are vulnerable if you simply act in bad faith while cloaking yourself in patriotism and this dumb rhetoric, what happens when they come in they do all of those steps but they're also not completely incompetent and gross and they're not talking about everything in the in the media they're not gossiping about everything they're not tweeting every 5 minutes something absurd and laughable what happens when they come in and they're talking about american exceptionalism and you know they're saying all the right things looking the right way the media will embrace this stuff so we have to disabuse ourselves of the mythologies that leads to our media and culture embracing these things while also recognizing the table is set for some really awful things. This thing that has happened with um, immigrants you know, being detained and put in cages and families being uh, split up, and even here in Georgia, we saw forcible sterilization. <clears throat> what happens in the future when the climate crisis hits us? And what happens when the number of refugees Triples, quadruples. What happens when when those numbers? And and then all of a sudden, you're also dealing with American states that are going to lose resources and size, and you're going to start having refugees within America. That's when fascism reaches full bloom, not to mention our economy is, is just on the verge of a major crisis. So what happens when all of those crises meet and come together and we have a rising fascist who has studied Donald Trump, but he's also more disciplined and has an actual ideology. Donald Trump is a fascist because deep down he is a fascist. He doesn't understand fascism. He doesn't understand what it means to be a fascist. It happens to be that he is intuitively a fascist. What happens when someone comes along and they understand it and they have a plan, they can stick to that plan, and the situations around them are perfect for them? That is a really frightening thing and one of the reasons why we have a lot of work to do and not a lot of time to do it
1: ton of work to do and there were some guardrails that were in place in the founding you know the founding they they did put guardrails in place however they never contemplated and correct me if i'm wrong they never contemplated the senate or the house or a combination of of both abdicating their their article one powers
0: absolutely and and the problem and this is one of those things if, if people want to sit around and talk about the genius of madison and the founders Well, we also have to take a look at where they fell short. Uh, They did not imagine the rise of political parties. What they thought would happen would be a rivalry between the different uh, parts of the government. They thought there would be a healthy rivalry between the executive and the legislative. Well, it turns out that when they get in concert together, there's not a whole lot that people can do when the legislative branch has no interest in reigning in the presidency. Well, they also, and this goes back to Donald Trump, and it goes back to their worldview. They were aristocratic white supremacists. If you went back in time, and this is one of those things a lot of people say they'd be rolling over in their graves. I understand that. But if you went back in time and told the founders that in the year 2020, their system of government was still going, and that the man in charge of the country was a supposed billionaire, one of the wealthiest people in the country, and a white man, they would have thought that this was easily the best choice that you could have had because they thought that wealthy people were the best repositories for liberty and they thought that white men were inherently superior. It just so happens they were wrong about that. They believed that because it was a story that they told themselves about themselves. The truth is that they failed to have the foresight to think about anything in the future that could possibly look like this because they couldn't imagine that everything they put into motion could possibly lead to a circumstance like this.
1: So, Jared, where where are we going now? Like, where's this going to end? I have my theory on it, but I'd love to hear what you think.
0: Well, it depends. I I think about this a lot, and I have to tell you, we've talked about some heavy stuff today. So I I always try and tell people that regardless of understanding this and, and recognizing it and grasping it, I'm still hopeful. American history shows us that that power is a pendulum in this country. And there are moments where the powerful and wealthy hoard power and wealth to the point where it seems like they could never be defeated and fascism could never be put down. Well, then people manage. They manage to take back some of that power. And the way that they do it is through solidarity, organization. Right now, we have a society that is incredibly atomized. This entire economic system is set up to make us all opponents of one another. It's set out to make uh, you know, each of us look at people, even if it's our neighbor, our loved ones, our family. We're supposed to look at them as economic competitors who are, you know, want to steal our slice of a very small pie um, and shrinking pie at that. I think that we're going to reject this. I think we're going to make it through it, and I think we're going to make a better society. But we also have a lot of challenges. I mean, new media, uh, particularly the Internet and social media, make this even harder. Uh, we have a really horrible future waiting for us if we go down the route of, you know, what we see in China right now. If we go down the route where you have not only a dystopia, but a technologically aided dystopia, that's pretty frightening, especially considering the Internet is more or less your private thoughts made public and, and traceable. So I, there, there's a lot that can happen bad here, but I really hope that we can look at this, we can be repulsed by it, and we can find something better.
1: First of all, thank you for writing the book. I mean, that it was it, it really is a—it's it, important, and it's something that, you know, you're a very important voice in, in this time. Just for the listeners, uh, Jared has a—on Sunday nights, he has a bourbon talk, you know, spends an hour, hour and a half, and he, you know, you pop open a bottle of bourbon, you watch— You watch them on the uh, on YouTube and you can interact and ask questions. And one of the great things about that has been you've educated everybody who comes on with the discussion. But you've you have given and I know this conversation has been, you know, at times dark, but you have given so many people a lot of hope with respect to withstanding the forces that are that are taking place now. And, And, you know, we owe that gratitude to you as well. I think what one of the most important things that you passed along to, to people who've interacted with you has been that we need, you know, you talked about social media, you talked about, and we talked earlier about people being alone and isolated and you talk about, and and I think it's the most important thing. And I want to leave everybody with this, where you say that make contact with people, speak to people, Ha- establish reestablish relationships with people people who don't who don't think like you or, or you know they may be a Trump supporter or they they may have other ideas and get to know them and and speak to them in a, in a, a human way so they know someone's there someone cares they're not alone and, and I think and again I don't do it justice uh, as you do and if you want to expand on that I'd love for that for you to do that um, but but I think that's something that's really important to end with
0: Well I would say this. That- I I, I say that myself and I say that, you know, we have to talk people and we have to repair these atomized bonds that, that, that used to be there. And, and I have a lot of people in my family and, you know, in, in my, uh, my orbit who have been radicalized. Um, I've seen them fall victim to white supremacist radicalization. I've seen them fall victim to not just Trumpism, but QAnon and just some really, really awful things. Well, When I start talking to them, and I'm not talking about politics, I start to realize that they're in the middle of a personal crisis. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of former white supremacists, particularly white supremacist recruiters, and they tell me left and right, they're always looking for someone who is alone, vulnerable, and in the middle of a crisis, a big, giant mental health crisis. We have a lot of people in this country who are very frightened, who are suffering uh, economically in a way that... um, You know, I know a lot of us are, and it doesn't mean we turn to fascism, but these are people who don't necessarily understand what's going on. Um, They're being flooded with conspiracy theories, and we're having a lot of really malevolent actors who are using that vulnerability and crisis against them. I would just recommend to people, and, and, you know, I'm not telling you that you have to go out and ask a Trump voter what they believe. I actually think that's one of the faulty mechanisms of our society, is I think that we've been talking to Trump supporters and asking what they believe. Well, what they believe is propaganda, what they believe has absolutely no relationship to reality. What I say is just talk to them as people and find out what's going on with them, not necessarily go in and just go in with the intention to change their politics, but to establish those old broken bonds and have a human moment with them. You know, if they have people around who care about them, they don't need to go to a Trump rally. They don't need to become a neo Nazi. They don't need to become radicalized. But we have a big, giant mental health crisis in this country. And it is largely a result of economics that is inhuman, unequal, and leaves us alone and without anybody else to reach out to or trust. And until we repair those atomized bonds, we're going to be in some incredible danger.
1: Amen. I appreciate it. Jared, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Maybe your next project, you come on we'll talk about that or or whatever else you want to talk about.
0: Well, I have to tell you, this was a a real treat. Really, really good interview. And I appreciate you having me on and and the kindness. And uh, yeah, I'll I'll just stop by saying good luck. Good luck to all of us.
1: Great. You got it. And we'll uh, we'll see you on Sunday. Be well, Jared. Thank
0: you. Thanks, buddy. Bye-bye. On behalf of David, once again, thank you for listening to this episode. Please take a moment to subscribe and give us a rating at Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time on The Trial Brief.